mental health, obesity, sexual health, diabetes, supporting men's health and patient care, building knowledge in men's health communities. Cardiovascular disease, according to the World Health Organization, is the leading cause of death globally. An estimated 17.9 million people died from cardiovascular disease in 2019 alone, representing 32% of all global deaths. Researchers like Professor Albert Ferrer have dedicated their career to studying cardiovascular disease and identifying early risk factors and markers to prevent it occurring in the first place. Well, my name's um, Albert Ferrow. I'm a um, professor of cardiovascular clinical pharmacology at King's College London and a consultant physician at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospitals. I have a long-standing uh, interest and uh, practice in cardiovascular prevention, and I run a hypertension, that's to say a blood pressure clinic at Guy's and St. Thomas's, and my research is all around uh, prevention of heart disease. And what made you interested in studying cardiovascular disease? Yeah, I think my, my interest in, in heart disease in general started when I was a medical student, really. Um, I was really, uh, it, it, it seemed to me a, a really important area. Uh, it, was, it, it was and still is one of the biggest causes of uh, death, uh, not just in the UK, but worldwide. Uh, I was very lucky to have some uh, very influential teachers uh, when I was a medical student as well, who really infused me in the subject, uh, Drs. David Jewett and Graham Jackson. Um, and I think the other thing uh, that probably influenced me was that around the time that I qualified and in my first formative years as a junior doctor was around the time when a bit of a revolution was happening in the treatment of uh, myocardial infarction, that's to say heart attacks. Um, in previous times, all that was really done for people who suffered MIs, myocardial infarctions, was to put them in bed for two weeks and let them rest. And of course, you know, some people made it and a lot of people didn't. Um, and there were two drugs which were introduced around the time um, that I was uh, in, in those early formative years. One was aspirin um, and the other was uh, a drug called streptokinase. Uh, which is a so-called thrombolytic drug, a clot-busting drug. And there was a big trial that was published at the time which showed that if you were on aspirin and streptokinase when you were admitted with your heart attack, then your chances of dying went down by about 40%. And that seemed to me like uh, you know, the whole field of cardiology was in a process of you know, really coming of age which it really has done since that time. And so I think that's what initially fired me up. And, and people can get quite confused with the terminology of, of cardiovascular disease and, and, and heart disease as well. Um, so would you be able to kind of describe what cardiovascular disease actually is? Well, it is a broad umbrella term, really. Um, it covers a lot of things, a lot of diseases that, that affect the heart and the circulation. Uh, the most important disease which is in that umbrella is called atherosclerosis and I can talk about that a little bit later uh, but essentially what that is is furring up of the the arteries and that's the main cause of coronary heart disease and stroke but there are lots of other diseases that affect the heart and circulation as well which include um, abnormal heart rhythms so-called arrhythmias um, heart failure uh, diseases of the heart muscle uh, called cardiomyopathies uh, diseases of the lining of the heart, uh, that's to say diseases of the pericardium, and also diseases of the heart valves as well. So it covers a, a broad range of uh, diseases. 
Um, the one which is by far the most prevalent is atherosclerosis, and that's my particular interest. According to the British Heart Foundation, within the UK alone, healthcare costs related to heart and circular diseases are estimated at £9 billion each year. But what impact does it actually have on the population as a whole? It's, it's big. Um, I mean, atherosclerosis is, as I said, the main cause of coronary heart disease and stroke. And uh, in terms of uh, prevalence, uh, there's about 2.3 million people in the UK which are, who are living uh, with um, coronary heart disease. Um, predominantly men, so about 1.5 million men, about 800,000 women. So it is by far the commonest of all of those diseases. Uh, it, it is the, the most common cause of uh, death worldwide, uh, which just outstrips all cancers and other diseases such as infectious disease and so on. So it really remains a very important cause of uh, death and disability. Two pathologists were particularly influential in discovering the mechanisms of the world's biggest killer, coronary artery disease. A German pathologist called Felix Markand apparently first introduced the term atherosclerosis in 1904, and he suggested that atherosclerosis was responsible for almost all obstructive processes in the arteries. And a Russian pathologist called Nikolai Anikov first demonstrated the role of cholesterol in the development of atherosclerosis. His classic experiments in 1913 paved the way to our current understanding of the role of cholesterol in cardiovascular disease, and his research is often cited among the greatest discoveries of the 20th century. But what is atherosclerosis? So it refers to um, narrowing of the arteries, which is progressive and is caused by deposition of cholesterol in the walls of the arteries. And that happens over time, over a very long time. And in fact, it affects pretty much everybody from a very early age. So post-mortem studies have shown that children as young as six or seven show early signs of atherosclerosis. And it progresses with age, but it tends to progress faster in people with risk factors. So if you're a smoker, if you've got high blood pressure, if you've got high cholesterol, if you're type 2 diabetic, if you're obese, then you're going to get a, an acceleration of that process. And the problem with atherosclerosis is, of course, that over time you get narrowing of the arteries. And when that happens in the heart, you get insufficient blood supply to the heart and that can cause symptoms of angina, uh, which is kind of chest pain on exertion. And when you get total occlusion of the artery, total blockage of the artery, that's when you get a heart attack or myocardial infarction. Similar thing can occur in the brain. Uh, and when uh, one of the arteries supplying the brain clots off, that's when you get a stroke. In the UK alone, one in eight men and one in 14 women die from coronary artery disease. Alive today in the UK, it's estimated that 1.4 million people have survived a heart attack, with one million of those men it's clear that cardiovascular disease in general disproportionately affects men. But why? It's very likely hormonal, actually. Um, what we know is that premenopausal women uh, have a much lower risk of um, heart disease than do men. But after the menopause, their risk rapidly catches up. So it does seem to be related to hormonal status. So we think it's probably related to... Um, the oestrogens that, that women produce. 
And, and the reason I say that is because of the fact that after the menopause, when estrogen level, levels drop rapidly, the, the risk for women rapidly catches up with men. So we think it's probably that estrogens are playing a protective role. My name is Michael Sitzman. I'm an endocrinologist and andrologist, and you're listening to Treated, the male healthcare podcast. Cardiovascular disease, and in particular the process of atherosclerosis, receive their fair share of misinformation online. Cholesterol, more specifically low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, also known as LDL cholesterol, infiltrate within the arterial wall and is key in the progression of atherosclerosis. But there are some who actively deny the role of LDL cholesterol in atherosclerosis, and therefore suggest that behaviours that increase it should not be managed or reduced such as taking life-saving medications like statins, which lower LDL cholesterol. This can have severe consequences to patients. Um, I think that the trouble with the internet, of course, is that any old person can put any old stuff that they want to on there. Um, it's completely unregulated. Um, so clearly there are people out there who have um, opinions on just about everything. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're right. I think that the message I would give to anybody is that if you're going to get information on anything related to medicine in general, you should use trust, trusted sources. Um, and if you are going to um, look at um, websites which suggest the opposite, then maybe do your own research, do, delve a little bit further, don't just take their word for it. Um, I think it's undoubted, you know, there is very clear evidence that cholesterol is very strongly related to, to heart disease. Where I think there is um, <clears throat> um, more to be said is that cholesterol isn't the whole answer. Cholesterol is part of it, but there's a lot more going on which contributes to atherosclerosis. Um, and that's really where my interest is, that I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in the role of inflammation. And we think that inflammation... Uh, accelerates the process but it's undoubted that cholesterol is is a prime mover in the in the pathophysiology in the, in the generation of atherosclerosis and in terms of the word um inflammation uh, i guess that's also another term which is quite uh, widely and commonly uh, misunderstood so would you mind explaining what inflammation is and what its role is in in atherosclerosis yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when I talk about inflammation, when people talk about inflammation, what it's really talking about is the body's <clears throat> um, reaction to foreign bodies, which may include microorganisms such as infections and so on, or f other foreign bodies. And what happens is you get the body's white cells, which attack those uh, invading bodies and create a reaction. That's what that's what inflammation is all about. Um and in the case of atherosclerosis, it's very clear that you can see lots of white cells are also present in the so-called atherosclerotic plaques. That's to say the areas where cholesterol is deposited. So not only do you see cholesterol crystals in there, but you also see a lot of white blood cells in there, suggesting that inflammation is also going on. Um, and that's been known about for, for a few decades now. Um, and in fact, um, there's a measure of inflammation that you can use in the blood. It's called C-reactive protein. Um, <clears throat> and for about two decades now, it has been used as a marker, as an additional marker of people who are at increased risk of heart attacks and stroke. Pr 
proving the causal link, however, has been very difficult. And it's only been in the last few years that it's become clear that there really is a causal link between that inflammatory process and atherosclerosis. And the reason I say that is that there have been a few trials published in the last few years which have shown that specific anti-inflammatory drugs which target that process can improve outcomes in people with either heart attacks or underlying uh, angina. So we've discussed what cardiovascular disease actually is, as well as the prevalence of cardiovascular disease and the impact it can have on patients. Um, but what can you actually do to reduce your risk? So that really is, is my particular clinical interest because um, what cardiologists have been so good at doing in the last 20, 25 years or so is treating people when they come in with their heart attack. There have been you know, great advances in the interventions they can do. They can put in stents, dilate up the art uh, arteries, uh, and they can do that in ever more complex type lesions. So the technical aspects of treating people with heart disease have improved dramatically. But where my interest really is, is, is preventing all of that happening in the first place. And that really comes down to treating risk factors. So if you're um, a person with high blood pressure or with high cholesterol, or if you're obese or if you're a smoker, um, then addressing all of those. And we know that if you have a combination of those risk factors, they work not just in a, in a sort of additive fashion, but in a kind of multiplicative fashion. Of, uh, fashion. So, so actually, if you're a smoker with high blood pressure, then in fact, your risk isn't just uh, uh, the risk of smoking plus the risk of high blood pressure. It's actually much more than that. So you really have to treat the risk factors very vigorously and treat them all. And if, on top of that, just uh, promoting the... Um, benefits of a healthy lifestyle in general, which have benefits not just for heart disease, but for overall health. A big challenge in cardiovascular disease is actually identifying early signs and symptoms, because often the first presentation of cardiovascular disease is a stroke or a heart attack, where often it's, it's, it's almost too late. But one of the more unique relationships with cardiovascular disease is a condition called erectile dysfunction in men. And erectile dysfunction is a common condition and associated with numerous different comorbidities. And there's been a lot of evidence recently that has shown erectile dysfunction to be a useful early clinical predictor of future cardiovascular events to suggest that if you have erectile dysfunction at early age, it may be a sign of an underlying more pathological process like cardiovascular disease? So uh, something that's been increasingly recognised is the presence of erectile dysfunction in men as, a, uh, as, a, as an early uh, predictor of silent atherosclerosis. The thing about atherosclerosis is that it often doesn't cause any symptoms until it's in a very advanced stage, or even people may present for the first time to medical attention with a heart attack or with a stroke, having had no previous symptoms at all. Um, but we now know actually that um, there are subtle things that you can, that if you don't ask about them, uh, you'll miss them. And erectile dysfunction is certainly one of them. Uh, people don't necessarily talk about it. They don't necessarily come to their doctor about it. And they won't necessarily volunteer that information unless you specifically ask about it. But we now know that atherosclerosis can affect the arteries uh, supplying the penis just as well as the other arteries in your body. And in that way, because because of that, it can cause uh, problems with uh, erections, 
Uh, and that can um, be an early warning uh, of the presence of atherosclerosis elsewhere and an indicator that those patients should be investigated. And a lot of the men may perceive erectile dysfunction to be a fairly benign condition. Um, maybe it's associated more so, or maybe they think it's associated more so with kind of mental health issues and so forth. So for those maybe worried about uh, their cardiovascular risk, if they present with, with erectile dysfunction, um, what advice would, would you give them? Would it be to visit their, their healthcare professional? I think that, that that's right, absolutely. That to visit your 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 healthcare professional, your GP, um, and I think there's increasing awareness now of uh, ED as a predictor of silent atherosclerosis, uh, and your GP may well refer you to a uh, local specialist uh, who might uh, do further screening and further investigation. And the other thing to say about it is that we now have very successful and very effective treatments for ED. Um, so even if you haven't got uh, coexistent heart disease, we can do something about your erectile dysfunction. So we've talked about what you can do to reduce your risk of, of heart disease in, in the first place. Um, but if you've been diagnosed with, with heart disease or, or cardiovascular disease, what treatment options are available? There are obviously the drugs that we would give them. So if they have established heart disease, they would normally be on a combination of drugs, which might include aspirin or an alternative uh, antiplatelet drug. Uh, they'll usually be on a statin. They may be on an ACE inhibitor as well. So lots of drugs uh, which we know uh, improve uh, both symptoms and outcome in the long term. But we will also be very much promoting healthy lifestyle which will include things like getting your weight down if you're overweight or obese, um, treating blood pressure if that's present, getting your cholesterol down, eating healthily, eating lots of fruit and vegetables, particularly green leafy vegetables, which we know are particularly good for lowering blood pressure, um, and avoiding um, high fat foods. And as we've discussed or touched on earlier with regards to the amount of misinformation uh, in cardiovascular disease, is there a particular myth um, or common perception uh, in cardiovascular disease or atherosclerosis in particular that you would like to squash or, or abolish? What I used to hear a lot of from patients was uh, that if there was a strong family history of heart disease, that there was nothing they could do about it. It was genetically determined. And um, if their parents died at a young age from heart disease, they kind of accepted that they probably wouldn't uh, live very much past the age of their parents, that sort of thing. I'm hearing that a lot less now, and I think the message is getting through that there's a lot more that we can do to treat and to prevent heart disease. And I think that's that's one of the myths that I, I, I would uh, try and promote, that um, nothing is predetermined, um, and I think it's very important for everybody, never mind what your family history is, for everybody to know their risk factors, um, to know what their blood pressure is, to know what their cholesterol is, uh, and to promote a healthy lifestyle, because I think all of those things are good, not just for your heart, but as I said before, they promote general well-being as well. The field of cardiology uh, has, has really evolved over the last 50 years or so, um, you know, since you mentioned earlier with, with the use of kind of aspirin in, in, in heart failure treatment, uh, which became kind of popular in, in, in 1989, um, and then also the first use of statins or the first approval of statins to treat uh, high cholesterol in, in 1987. Um, 
but wh- where do you see the field of cardiology evolving over the next five to, to ten years? So one of my other research interests at the moment is um, in trying to better predict who has silent atherosclerosis. Um, because at the moment, uh, as I think I said before, um, a lot of people are asymptomatic. They have narrowing of their arteries, but it causes no symptoms until they prevent very present very late with um, with a heart attack or a stroke. Um, the only way to effectively uh, find what patients have severe disease if they're asymptomatic is to do some kind of imaging, whether that be CT angiography. Uh, or MRI scanning or invasive angiography. And obviously that's not something that we could do to a whole population. That would be far too, not not just too expensive, but too intrusive as well. So one of my interests is trying to develop a simple test for screening which patients need further investigation. And we're working on a particular um, biomarker in the blood, which we think is going to be very effective in um, determining what patients are at low risk and what patients are at high risk. And if we can identify better those who are at high risk, they can then be targeted for uh, individual imaging and further treatment if necessary. And do we know the biomarker or is it um, sworn under, under secrecy? It's all to do with a, a particular type of white cell in the blood. And we feel we think that if we can measure that specific type of white cell, uh, and its levels in the blood. Uh, and our preliminary data suggests that it, it is very predictive, but we're working on that, and I think it may be premature to give any more details at the moment. Here at Treated, we're delighted to be able to partner and also support the Healthy Heart Charity, um, and, and you are a member yourself uh, of this organisation. So would you be able to describe or explain in a little bit more detail what this charity is and, and what is your role in it? I've only joined the Healthy Heart Charity um, in the last few months, uh, but it's existed since 1996. And it's essentially uh, a charity which is uh, devoted to promoting healthy living and particularly healthy living uh, as related to cardiovascular disease. So it's very much about outreach, about getting the message out to the general public and also getting it out there as early as possible. Um, now, I think most listeners will know of the British Heart Foundation, which does an excellent job and funds a lot of research into heart disease and funds a lot of um, services for patients with heart disease. Um, but where there's a little bit of a space where and where our, our charity is really focused is on the prevention side of things. Um, and like I said, it's, it's relevant to people of any age, but we're particularly interested in getting that message to younger people, because the earlier you can intervene and promote the, the message about healthy living, uh, the more likely you are to, to prevent future disease. Uh, so even getting the message out into schools and so on. So we produce um, publications, uh, webinars, uh, we do conferences uh, and outreach activities as well, um, all with the the, the aim of um, educating uh, the general public uh, about healthy living and, and prevention of heart disease. Well, we have a website. It's healthyheartcharity.com, uh, and I would uh, recommend uh, visiting it. Uh, and if uh, your listeners uh, would be uh, uh, would feel up to donating towards it, we would be very grateful. 
So before we finish off uh, today's episode, we actually have one last question, which is uh, from uh, a member of the general public uh, who has written into you and, and asked um, if the the supplements and uh, products you see at local health stores uh, to improve your heart health, do they actually work? Mm, I think the short answer to that is no. Um, the interventions which uh, do work uh, are available uh from your doctor because they've been scientifically tested and shown to work. Uh, the vitamins and other supplements that you can get from health stores, unfortunately, the evidence for those is pretty much non-existent. So I would talk to your doctor um, about whether it's worth it. But in general terms, I'd say the answer is no. Thank you to Professor Albert Farrow for joining us here on the Men's Health Podcast. And although we're done for today's episode, do keep an eye out for future episodes as we'll be joined by uh, more leaders and experts in the field of health.